Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel, or Jacob, he goes by both names, as you may remember, loved Joseph more than any of the other children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a long robe with sleeves. Now, most of us are used to hearing robe of many colors, but modern scholarship has decided that it's more appropriate to call it a robe with long sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And then we skip through the dreams and get down to, Now the brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, or Jacob says to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. And Joseph came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering around in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after the brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes that dreamer. Come, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianites traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, when we hear this story of the jealous brothers of Joseph, angry about that special robe and their plot to kill him, and then sell him into slavery. We're not really so shocked about the seriousness of that crime because we know that the end of the story, it all works out for the good. And then most of the times that we've heard this story or we've read this story has been children's books or skits and plays at Sunday school where we don't get quite the seriousness of 
this crime against Joseph. Now, maybe if we used one of the uh, TV shows and used this plot, like Missing or CIA, I mean CSI, those shows that try to investigate what happens to someone who's disappeared or been murdered, it might help us reimagine this and feel the weight and the heaviness of this crime that they are committing. We know that the gravity of it goes all the way back to Cain's answer to God when God asked him, where is your brother Abel? And Cain answered, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, our tradition says, yes, you are your brother's keeper. He's your brother. You're responsible for him. You're supposed to look out for him. Take care of him. Protect him. Well, we know children fuss and fight with each other growing up, and they punch and gouge each other and sometimes try to really hurt each other. But as they grow up, they're supposed to outgrow that kind of bickering and and jealousy. And, but then we also know that resentments can run pretty deep when parents show favoritism. However, the more important dynamics in this story are to be found as we explore the cultural background of this time. The first thing is that we often overlook and is left out of the children's versions of the story is that these 12 sons of Jacob come from four different mothers. One dad, Jacob, but four different mothers. So actually at this point, it's really involving ten half-brothers of Joseph, and the, the last brother is only a baby at this time. If you remember the patriarchs, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, Sarah has this long-awaited baby in their old age, a miracle baby called Isaac, Isaac marries Rebekah, who was also barren for a long time until she finally has twins, Esau and Jacob. Now, Jacob, when they grow up, tricks or swindles Esau out of the family's heritage by claiming the birthright or getting him to sell the birthright, which means Jacob gets the role of leader of the clan and all the wealth. Well, Esau's furious about this and threatens to kill him, so Jacob runs away. For 20 years, he's gone. And while he's gone, he goes to live with his mother's, mother Rebecca's brother, Laban, and his family. And while he's there, he falls in love with his cousin, Rachel, and he has to work for seven years to earn her hand in marriage. Well, Uncle Laban tricks Jacob and gives him Rachel's older sister, Leah, on the wedding night after all this feasting and drinking. And Jacob wakes up the next morning and discovers he was tricked. It wasn't Rachel, but Leah with whom he had consummated the marriage. Now, after a week's honeymoon with Leah, Laban gives Jacob his beloved Rachel, but he makes him promise to serve him another seven years. Now, as a wedding present to Leah, Laban gives her the handmaid Zilpah. And then a week later, he gives Rachel a handmaid Billah. Now, Leah was the unwanted and unloved one, but she was very fertile. She quickly produces four sons, Reuben, the firstborn, followed by Simeon, Levi, and Judah. 
Now, since Rachel is barren this, during this time, she did like Sarah did for Abraham and offered her handmaid to become a surrogate and to produce some babies. So Billa has two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Well, in the meantime, Leah had stopped conceiving, and so she offers her handmaid to Zilpah, her handmaid Zilpah to Jacob to produce more children. And Zilpah bore two sons, Gad and Asher. Well, lo and behold, Leah conceives again and produces two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun, plus a daughter, Dinah. Now, while all of this birthing is going on, Rachel is still barren. But finally, God blesses her and she has a baby boy, Joseph. Now, you remember, Rachel was Jacob's first love, the number one in his heart, if not the only one in his bed. And then to round it out, Joseph is about 16, Rachel conceives again. But she dies in childbirth when Benjamin is born. Well, baby Benjamin is Joseph's only full brother. All the rest are half-brothers. Now, this is where our text picks up today. Joseph is 17, and he's out working with his brothers, shepherding. His brothers are the sons of Billa and Zilpah, his father's wives, it says. And then Joseph brings a bad report of them to his father. Now, my reason for going through all this rehearsal is of these births and wives is to bring up the point that the sons of Billa and Zilpah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, are numbers 5, 6, 7, and 8. And they're the sons of the two handmaids. Now, even though the text calls them wives, they're not on the same level or the same status as Leah and Rachel. They are virtual house slaves, concubines, if you will, and they are just property to be given away as wedding presents. So the status of the mother affects the status of their sons, and of course, birth order matters too. And these four young men had four other brothers ahead of them. Well, Joseph is helping them. He's younger, they're older, they're experienced. He may be somewhat inexperienced in this shepherding business. But Joseph brings his dad a bad report about them. Now, most commentators imply that Joseph is just a tattletale. That he is this arrogant, all-full-of-himself teenager. He's his father's favorite. He's a brat. But, you know, when we read the rest of the story and we look at the high ethical behavior of Joseph when he's in the home of Potiphar and realize that he demonstrated such gifts and abilities and qualities to let him rise to that high level of responsibility in the court of Pharaoh, then it's reasonable to assume that he just might have given his father an accurate truthful report on the brothers. Particularly if we think about the cultural situation, these brothers were growing up knowing that they did not have great prospects for their future. Their prospect was to serve one of those other guys, the first class brothers. That was what their future was. So, they might not have had a whole lot of ambition to do a real good job shepherding, 
They may have been goof-offs, slackers. Well, at 17, Joseph would have been old enough to know whether they were doing a good job or not. But regardless of what, whatever, these brothers would resent this younger brother. They had lots of reasons. Now, as I was reflecting on this passage, trying to understand the dynamics, I remembered when I was a boy and I worked with my dad or for my dad in the construction business. And the first thing that popped into my mind when I was about 11 or 12, I tagged along with my dad and I went to a job site. And when I got there, when we got there, there was a laborer, and I think his name was Buck, and he was working in this trench. It was about 18, 24 inches wide and a couple of feet deep or so. It was going to be a footing for concrete, but he was digging the dirt out. And so I grabbed a shovel and started digging too. And as I was kind of digging, I realized that, well, I'm moving as much dirt as Buck, and he's three times my size, big, strong laborer. And so I said to my dad, look, Dad, I can dig faster than Buck. Now, I don't remember anything that was said, but I remember that look from Buck. It was one of those, if looks could kill, kind of looks. Well, I finished up my little section and put the shovel away and got as far away from Buck as I could. But I remember later on when I was a teenager working as liaison between the job and the office, I never did get all wrapped up in my importance. I never got this attitude that, well... I'm management, so I can boss the laborers around. Never got that attitude. I just carried materials and messages back and forth because, you know, construction sites are dangerous. And I didn't want somebody thinking that the boss's kid need to be taken down a notch or two with one of those, oops, oh, you better go get some stitches in that. So I can kind of understand the dynamics and the feelings of class and power and prospects for the future and who might inherit this whole operation. But verse tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more than the other children because he was the son of his old age. And we would add, and the son of his most beloved Rachel. So Jacob gives Joseph this present of this robe. Now the significance of the robe and its style is this is the robe of royalty. And in Joseph wearing that robe and having been given that robe by his father is an indication that Jacob is planning to make Joseph the heir of the position of leader of the family, of the clan, of the wealth, which means... All the other brothers would take great exception and think it's not fair at all for this 11th son in line to become their ruler, their boss, and have control over the wealth. So, this issue created a great problem to see 
how they would be feeling. So when Joseph is coming to check on them again and they're grazing the flocks down by Dothan, they plan to kill him. But they're not all in agreement. No one is strong-willed enough to argue that this whole scheme is totally wrong. But Reuben is able to mitigate the plan to just throw him in a pit. But then these traitors come along and Judah gets the bright idea, well, let's sell him into slavery. But what fascinates me about this is Judah's reasoning. He says, what profit if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to some Ishulamites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And the others agreed. Now, if he's your brother, your own flesh, neither one of those things is right. Neither killing him nor selling him into slavery. And the commentators tell us that it was illegal in their culture at that time, the Hebrew people, to take one of their own, enslave that person, and then sell him to a foreigner. Now, there was debtor's servitude, but not selling someone into slavery to foreigners. The way slavery mostly worked was if there was a battle with a foreign tribe and you won, you had the opportunity to commute the sentence of death and just make him a laborer instead of killing him. But that was with foreigners. The ancient Hebrew telling this story would know this prohibition, so it's interesting that the Midianites came along and put their hands on Joseph, and they're the ones that pull him out of the pit. And they're the ones who end up selling him down in Egypt. So the dynamic here is we won't get our hands dirty breaking the law, but we'll set it up so that somebody else will do our dirty work for us. We can't sell him into slavery here because it's against our rules and our ethics and our morality in our country. But we can ship him out of the country where our rules and laws and moral principles don't apply. It seems like we have a word for that today. It's called rendition. And there are other ways to keep our hands clean while setting up situations to let other people do our dirty work. It's sometimes called outsourcing. When labor laws and sweatshop conditions and environmental laws and pollution and health and safety laws about using lead in children's paint are not regulated and inspected, then we have situations like Joseph's brothers whose hands are clean because they're not actually doing it. Well, as I studied this text, the issue of slavery kept grabbing my attention. Besides Joseph going into slavery and being sold and knowing that the whole Hebrew people will be enslaved, we also realize Billah and Zilpah were actually slave girls in Jacob's camp. And the irony that the Ishmaelites... Ishmael was Hagar's son, the slave girl who was given to Abraham. 
So we've got all of these connections and reminders about the theme of slavery. Now, I accidentally came across some articles about modern-day slavery, and we've got the same kinds of conditions all over the world. Ten million people are probably involved in some kind of slavery. And those of us who've lived here in Tulsa a while remember there was somebody named Pickle who had gotten some guest workers from India, and they were virtually slaves. And their situation was similar to so many to where guest workers are promised to get work over here, but you have to go over there, and when you get there, you're out of your own country, you have no connections, and then when you get there, you find out, well, your, your travel, your training, your housing, and your food cost this big amount, and your little tiny wages aren't even going to make payment on the interest, much less that debt. So you're locked up in big dormitories, and you're not allowed to go free. Well, anyway, this is a condition that that I read about, and the reminder to me about this is that as I read this ancient text and saw all these connections with slavery, and then our own uh, Congress passed this resolution to apologize for the legalized slavery and Jim Crow laws within our own country, America, the land of the free all these slavery issues realize that it's not an ancient 2,000-year-old problem. It's still here today. But it also reminded me that the unique characteristics of this Hebrew God, different from all the other all il ales that Luzon tells us about around that world, is that this was the God who freed slaves. That was his unique characteristic. He was the God who freed slaves. And our Lord Jesus freed us from the bondage to sin and death. Well, about that question of whether it's the hand of God or the fickle finger of fate, I believe that it is neither. The sin of the brothers caused the problem, but the hand of God moves us to do something about the problem to step forward and say, this is all wrong. Or to move forward and say, I have a vision of how we can make it right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.